Welcome to Chicago's Bravest Stories. This episode brought to you by PSP Academy for your CPAT training. Follow us on social media, our Instagram and Facebook page at trainwithpsp.com. Welcome to Chicago's Bravest Stories. Today with us, we're lucky to have Pete Lazara, retired field chief with the Chicago Fire Department. How are you, Pete? I'm very good. Thanks for uh, having me. Well, thanks for uh, being patient with this setup. We wanted to let everybody know if our sound sounds a little different. We're adhering to the social distancing protocol yeah. set forth by the city, and we're actually doing this remote with some uh, new technology here. Thanks to our uh, partners at Mystery Street Recordings. So um, just bear with us, everybody, and um, hopefully uh, we'll get back to uh, normal life as we knew it before this pandemic. Yeah, hopefully hopefully so. Yeah, uh, yeah. what's your take on this whole thing, Pete? Uh, well, you know what? Originally, I wasn't that concerned um, because more people were dying from the flu. Uh, there's been uh, pandemics. And uh, in the past, that have been pretty horrific. I thought with our uh, medical technology and the science that we had, that we would knock this thing down. But as it uh, started to spread, uh, I really started to get worried. And, uh, you know, as you guys know, I host a conference up in uh, the Geneva area called the Geneva Convention EMS Conference. And that was scheduled to go um, the last weekend of March. So on March 10th, actually, Joe Weber who's one of the medical directors for the city of Chicago, called me and he said, uh, hey, Pete, I really think that uh, you should think about canceling the conference. I'm going, Joe, I mean, I'm just a couple of weeks away. I'm financially handcuffed to this thing. Uh, what are you thinking? He said, and this is what he told me. He said, you know what, Pete, in two weeks we could be Italy. And at that point in time, I thought, man, this is probably a little bit bigger um, than I'm really thinking it might be. And at that point in time, I started to get a little bit more concerned, and uh, I was really hoping that we would take more aggressive actions, you know, with social distancing and shutting things down. I mean, I think we jumped on it fairly quick, but, um, you know, look where we are now. Uh, So this is something that we really, really have to work as a team, you know, keep our social distancing like we're doing tonight, and, you know, stay at home and stay safe. And before we get into any other discussions, I would like to say to all those people that are out there, you know, those warriors that are working at front line, EMS, fire, police, uh, grocery workers, truck drivers, doctors, nurses, all those people, you know, those are really, really warriors and uh, heroes. And it's been a pleasure and it was really an honor to be able to serve with some of these people. I mean, they're out there tonight doing this and they have no idea where this might take them. So. I think about them every day, and I worry for them. You wish you were back out there? Well, that's a good question. You know, um, I thought when I retired, I was ready to go. That's the big thing. you got to be ready to go. And I felt very comfortable in leaving the job at the point I did. You know, I I had almost 30 years in with the city. Um, I've been a paramedic close to 40. um, And I thought, this is a good time. Uh, Now. In hindsight, um, if I saw this coming, maybe I would have stayed. I don't know. I wrestle with that all the time. You know, I call some of the people that uh, I work with, some of the crews that I work with, check see how they're doing, and I feel for them. And I feel sometimes almost guilty that I'm home. So that's where I'm at right now. (laughs) That's the hardest part is that analogy of sitting on the bench. Yeah. 
there's a big game going on right now. You know, it is, and it is a big game. And you know, I'm very confident in the team we have out there that can be successful with this. But again, people have to be smart. You know, they have to listen to what's going on, abide by the laws, and and stay home. Well, I don't know if you know, Pete. We got um, four special COVID rigs in the city of Chicago operating yeah. right now, and right. I'm on one of those. And oh. you you talk about you know when I first it was a volunteer, yeah. Um, okay. And at first I was like, this is blown way out of proportion. This is like yeah. a disease for the sick, the elderly, you know, the predisposed to getting hurt by this. And mm-hmm. now we hear more and more healthy people, young people yes. getting affected by this. Yeah, it doesn't discriminate against anybody. You know, it's not race. It's not religion. It's not age. It's, you know, nothing. It, it, it's, a, it's a nasty, nasty virus. Several years ago, I read a book called The Great Flu Epidemic. It was about the Spanish flu in 1918. That thing lasted two years. It started in March, and it really attacked young healthy people because of the immune response that they had. And they actually were developing these, you know, really, really bad pneumonias and dying that way. And, uh, you know, my wife was comparing that to this. And I said, well, you know what, that was 1980. We've had such, you know, uh, advancements in science and technology and testing and treatment. But you know what? This thing is spreading and uh, it scares me a lot more than I thought it would. Yeah. Well, let's come back around to that. Sure. So I understand that you graduated from Northeastern, right? <laughs> yeah, and I went to Northeastern. <laughs> one, one of my and, several college stops. Okay. Well, like the, the big thing that I remember from, you know, uh, me like a lot of other people, who hold uh, paramedic licenses and EMT licenses have, have crossed your path in some form. Um, but, uh, and the one thing that keeps coming up was that you were a, a high school teacher. I, I was. So it, it's funny how my path took getting to where I ended up. Um, so in high school, I graduated in 1975. So that's a long time ago. Um, but during the seventies, some of you may remember there was a show called Emergency On. And believe it or not, you know, I mean, Roy watching Emergency and thinking, man, this is a cool job. But I was in high school. Yeah, so, squad 52. Uh, and, and the thing was, hey, this is a city job. This is a city of Chicago. I vote Democratic. My whole family voted Democratic. There's eight votes in the House. You know, let's go to our precinct captain and let's find out about how we can get this, uh, this job. So my dad actually did approach him and say, hey, what's the deal with this paramedic job? And he never heard of it. So I was lucky enough that I ended up uh, going to – I started at North Park College. I went there uh, actually to play basketball. I know you look at me now think, God, this is just audio. Um, you wouldn't believe that I played college basketball. So I went to North Park. And uh, didn't do the greatest. Ended up leaving there. Um, my dad owned a printing company. Uh, I went and worked for him. And uh, luckily, I was so bad at it that my dad actually said, Hey, Pete, I love you, but you might want to find something else to do. So I uh, <laughs> fired you? Well, he did fire me. He, he suggested that I left. Um, so he did such a good job up, of firing me that, yeah. I, that I quit. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, he was so good at it that I left. So, I mean, 
can you help me you know, find out? He said, well, you know what? Why don't you go to Northeastern? I did. I went to Northeastern. I ended up playing basketball there for a little bit. Um, went and got an edu- education degree and lucked out. Uh, I, gra- I, I, I graduated in June and I got hired at Gordon Tech in um, August. So I left in June, Northeastern. I was in the classroom in August. So um, there's a lot of guys that are on the Chicago Fire Department I actually had in class. Uh, I ended up teaching uh, a potpourri of things. My degree is actually in health science and PE. So I ended up teaching a lot of health classes. I taught PE. Uh, my favorite subject to teach was actually uh, American history. So I did a little bit of that and a little bit of biology. But it, w- it was a fun time. I-, I was there from, I think, 1979. I left in 85. And while I was there, I, I-, I still was interested in EMS. So uh, while I was at Gordon, at night, I went to an EMT class at Truman and uh, got my EMT certificate at that time. It wasn't a license. It was uh, EMT ambulance or EMTA. And uh, hmm. I got out, and I think in, it was about 81. And then I sat on that license and did nothing. And then uh, I decided, hey, you know what? Why don't I pursue this before my EMT license expires? And I actually got into, uh, through some help of a relative, got into the Loyola program, which was at night. So it was the only paramedic program that was at night. So while I was uh, working, teaching. Out of Maywood, Pete, or the, um, or North yeah, Shore? Yeah, out of Maywood. Yeah, out of Maywood. Oh, wow. So um, it was John Shea and Pat Zapo. And um, I finished there. And um, then I kind of jumped careers. And I, I left teaching and uh, got into the EMS profession. My first job was actually with Superior. Then I worked uh, for PSI, a paramedic services in Illinois, I think they are, for several years. And then in yeah. 1990... Where were you working for with them? Well, I actually started in Berwyn. Um, no kidding. With land, land of bakery and funeral homes. Uh, and, and, <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, They're known for different things now, I think. Yeah, but I started, which was actually, you know, and I can't tell you how many guys that are on uh, different departments that actually started uh, through Berlin. um, Oh, yeah. Steve was was, was phoning around there for a little bit after we got out of school. I had a little stint in Berlin. See, they are. I mean, uh, there was a lot of people that went through that little town. And uh, um, so... So I did Berwyn, and then I would slow to other departments, and I mean North Riverside. I did. Uh, um, you were a, a firefighter as well, there, Pete. Yeah, I'm also a firefighter. So okay. not a good one, but well, uh, I, I, uh, I did see that's something that I didn't know about you until we started yeah. researching this podcast. So I, I found that interesting because you never like make mention of that, like um, you know, in, in in your dealings. Just yeah. wasn't for you, or you, you just didn't. Oh no, I, I like firefighting. No, yeah. I, I liked it, and uh, I ended up in Wheaton, and we were firefighters there, and I enjoyed that. Um, but you know, seriously, uh, I'm one of the few that say, "Man, I loved being a paramedic. I really, really enjoyed it, and uh, I still do." Um, but so I had no real interest in crossing over. I mean, I like firefighting and everything. Uh, but I had, I didn't have the interest to cross over, and so I I stayed in the mess. And so you're one I, of the I got smartest hired. guys I've ever known. It wouldn't surprise me if you said that you just like 
you just took the test one day to be a fireman and you pass and they're like, oh yeah, you're good. You know, <laughs> um, just fast no, track your way through an entire academy. <laughs> Pete, you came on, you came on the city yeah. in 1990. Right. So that was July of 1990 that I uh, came on. So I was a little bit older. So I taught for five and a half years and then I worked, uh, you know, with PSI through the suburbs for I think about six years. So when I got on, I was either, thir- I think I was 32 or 33. So I was a little bit older uh, when I came on. Uh, but I mean, I came on with a great class and uh, I was really excited. And Throw some uh, of those names out that, that were in your class. That, that was we in my class? Yeah. Oh my God. Um, I don't know how many are still working and a few of them are not alive. I know Henry Lucas was in that class. Um Trying to think who else. You, you know, I'm just so terrible with names. I can picture all their faces, um, but I don't know how many are still on. Vicki Janowick okay. is still on. There's a lot of them, like Marie Quinn crossed over. I forget John's last name. He's a battalion chief. Uh, but it, it was really, it was a great class. Tom Garswick was in that class. How long was your academy back in 1990? <laughs> I think it was about four weeks, four and a half weeks, four, four or five weeks. <laughs> Uh, the instructors were Jim O'Shea, um, Dan Goretti, Stokes, um, who else? Um, God, Dan Bro. Who was the other guy that was down at the academy? Great guy. He died um, a while ago. Jeez. Um, I forget his name, but uh, it was it was it was a great experience, and it was quite an eye opening. Opener when I came out of the academy uh, after working in Wheaton for two or three years and and then going to work in the city. It's, it's quite a little bit of a, a, a culture shock, a little bit of a shock. I think it's a culture shock to everybody who comes on to the city. Even if you it, come it, from it a, a busier department, I don't think, and the academy definitely isn't going to prepare you for what you're going to see and, you know, what, what you're going to experience. Um, you know, uh, when I was on at the academy, I, I would tell the candidates that, you know, we're not going to, you're not going to learn your job here at the academy. You're going to learn it when you get out there and we're just preparing you for your first day. You know, what that does, paramedic school, EMT school, the academy, that's a foundation. So it, it gives you all the knowledge and a little bit of clinical experience. Your real experience and your learning is going to take place out in the field. The problem here that we have then is that you're thrown right into the fire. You know, if if I start at a corporation, I'm starting in a mail room and I'm learning, I'm taking my steps up the corporate ladder and I, I'm learning the job, you know, as I go. Um, with us, on your first day, on your first run, that could be a pediatric cardiac arrest. And that's a hard thing to prepare for. You know, this, this job physically is demanding, emotionally, it sucks the life out of you, it's draining. Uh, it really takes a, a a strong person, both physically, mentally, to survive in this job. And one of the problems I see is that, you know, people can't get can't wait to get on the Chicago Fire Department. It is a great, great job. But one of the problems I do see is that, um, you know, a lot of these men and women they start in the privates, which we all did. I mean, I started with a company called Burrs um, in the uh, early '80s. And um, they can't wait to get on the fire department. Now they get on. And, you know, for the first 
six months, year, couple years, it's, it's a pretty good ride and pretty good experience. Then what happens is that this job kind of grinds you down. And because, you know, we do get paid well, we're financially handcuffed to this. And what I found is that, you know, there are some angry people out there because they're stuck in these positions. And, you know, we can talk on this subject matter for hours and hours and hours, how to resolve some of this. And, and it's really, really a tough struggle for them. Yeah, but they do, they do a great job. Without help from the department, yeah. is there a solution to that? Um, a lot of solutions that I offer up are not always popular solutions. One is we shouldn't be on 24 hours. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's funny that you, uh, that you bring that up because um, I'm on an altered work schedule right now and I'm working 12 hour shifts and yeah. I started to get the realization right away that I can be a human being seven days a week instead yeah. of, you know, two, two days a week. Um, it, it's an unpopular opinion though, because everybody wants those days off. Oh, um, absolutely. And, but I, I feel so much better on a 12 hour schedule and I, I just, you know, I, I don't have that hangover the next day, um, yeah. which is, which hurts that hangover hurts. I like that you use that term hangover because that's a term I use all the time. I used to call it a sleep hangover because I would get off and depending on what stage of life it was, uh, when we, uh, so when I came in 90, I have two children. My daughter, Katie, was born in 87, and then Patrick was born in 90, shortly after I graduated the academy. So, um, you know, coming home uh, for the first six months was fine because my wife was still at home. But once she returned to work on a um, short work schedule, I'd come home from Amherst 15, and there were babies waiting for me. That's a tough thing to do. It's a, that's a real tough thing to do. But the thing is, you're right, Vince, it is, it's unpopular because we do like those three days off. We'll fight through 24 hours to get to those three days off. It's a great benefit of this job. But the toll that it takes on your health, and you know what? It was easy for me as a field chief to say it because, you know, I wasn't getting my, my head kicked in like you know, the people that are working in the field. Uh, but, you know, I can see it where, and the trouble is getting three days off. The trouble is, these guys aren't always getting three days off. And we can point to certain people that this had a devastating effect on. You know, you talk about suicide in, in our profession is at a ridiculous level. And you got to look at what are some of the causes of this. I mean, we see things in, in a day that people don't see in a lifetime. And there's a, a price to pay for that. There's a toll. Unless you have some kind of great you know, support system, you know, a great family, some other type of activities that you can, you know, debrief and de-stress, you know, this thing will really take its toll on. But if you, if you took a poll out there, Vince, you know that, that I would say 90% of the people would tell you that they would want to be on 2472s. You know, they, they, I love when they tell me I could never work 40 hours. You know, 98% of the people in the world work 40-hour work weeks. Uh, but I understand it, you know. Um, I loved it when I, I had my three days off. But, uh, again, the volume of calls that they're running today and the stress that they're under, the scrutinizing that they're under is taking a toll. It is rough. And, you know, I, I always go to – when I talk about 
the medics, especially with the Chicago Fire Department and their call volume, I always take it to the peak of summer on the busiest ambulance, what those guys are doing. Um, right. You know, that that's my litmus test on how busy we are. And, you know, there's nobody who's going to argue with me if I say that the busiest companies in the city, whether that be the, the 15s, the 10s, the 14s, and pretty much there is no slow ambulance companies. No, nope, not anymore. Those guys are going to be doing close to 30 runs in the dead of summer. And the, t- the toll that that takes on people, you know, it's, it's causing damage that people don't even know exist at this point right here's the thing when i came on um ems was probably in its toddler stage you know it's just was breaking out of its infancy so we're probably in our 20s now you know basically in, in, in ems life uh, so we really don't know the uh the toll that it will take because we haven't seen a lot of our people retire i mean we're starting to see it now but uh, I think it's going to be another 10, 20 years to see exactly what the toll is and the price we're going to have to pay for doing this job. Um, so we just go from one hot, happy topic to the next. I mean, I, <laughs> I have thoughts about, I mean, how, how this can be corrected. I mean, things like, first of all, uh, the acuity, I mean, the volume we have is very high. The acuity is very low. So I know they're looking at uh, paramedicine and uh, community uh, paramedicine, and, and I think that will help. Um, but unless we have some type of uh, take a little bit of I, pressure off of EMS and nine one one, yeah, you know, try to eliminate the repeat offender. Like in, in COVID nineteen, for example, Vince, you know this. You're on an ambulance. Let's say you do respond to somebody who uh, you think might be COVID nineteen. Uh, positive, all right, but they're only showing mild symptoms. Um, does this person need to go to an ER? Probably not, but you do need to follow up on these people, and that's where the community medicine, uh, paramedicine could come into play, where they get onto a list, and let's say, okay, we have a staff or a, uh, a unit that goes out the next day and takes their temperature, checks on their feelings, do, does all that, and even do some telemedicine with a doctor. Well, I think somebody has been listening to some of your criticism because as of the last two days, they came out with a new protocol where you go down the algorithm and if somebody meets all the criteria, you give them a COVID packet. Um, ah, a follow-up is done by somebody within the system. But I'm the firm believer that even if we had 20 more ambulances in the city, that's just 20 more ambulances that are going to be busy. Well, I don't know if you ever heard me say this. I always say, you know what? We have enough ambulances. We have too many calls. <laughs> that's, that's, that's how I feel, yeah. Right? We have, we have enough ambulances. We have too many calls. We are responding to things that we probably should not be responding to. But, again, that's a very tough thing to, you know, uh, figure out. Well, nobody's going to assume that kind of liability. Right. At least this day and age. Um, well, you know, there are other models out there that work. And um, if you look at Seattle, Washington, I went out there uh, and took the Resuscitation Academy and had time to spend with some of the people out there. You know, now Seattle, I think, is a town of, and you'd have to fact check me on this, uh, about a million. I know they have a lot of homeless, but there's, there's a, about a million. They're, they're not 
quite as big as we are, obviously. But do you know how many ALS ambulances they have out there? Um, for the city of Seattle? Yeah. Um, no. 50. No idea. Seven. They have seven ALS ambulances. So what happens out there is they send a BLS ambulance on every run. No, a BLS engine on every, every run. And um, if they determine it's BLS, actually AMR comes in and transports. Uh, if the ALS ambulance does arrive uh, and they determine it's BLS, the engine company stays with them. They call for a BLS transport and they return in service. Uh, it's also kind of funny that out in Seattle, it's kind of different than it is here where a lot of our medics are crossing the floor to the fire side. Um, out there at the end of their career, what they're trying to do, the firefighters are trying to get on the ambulances because they're slower and they get about eight and a half percent more. So it's a little <laughs> bit different. It's a little bit different than what we have here. It's hard gotcha. to wrap our brains around that being here. I, in the I city. know it's a little bit. It's a little bit tough. Yeah. Much different pendulum swing out there. <laughs> yeah, and, and they're pretty successful at it. I, you know, uh, I've also said that you know we should have a big fleet of BLS ambulances. I, I think every firehouse in the city, of course, there's no room to house it, but I think we should have probably 80 to 100 BLS ambulances. Now, not staffed by firefighters. Firefighters need to be on trucks and engines. Um, let's go ahead and hire EMTs and uh, put them on BLS ambulances and, and allow them to bridge the paramedicine, open our own paramedic academy, Chicago Fire Department paramedic academy so let's say you're uh an emt events and you come out and you work in a private for a year or two and uh you get hired by the Chicago fire department now we're going to give you the opportunity i mean if you're happy being an emt working on a bls ambulance that's fine but if you want to bridge to to be a paramedic why don't we go ahead and put them through our own fire academy our own uh, paramedic fire academy uh we'd work on their uh, work schedule and work around them, and then we know the product that we're producing. You know, we got them from EMT through paramedic school, through their provisional, all the way to the point that they transition into uh, an ALS rig. You know, they we have them for uh, a few years before they're actually put on an ALS rig. Um, and then, you know, if we had that many more people into the departments, that's more people coming into the pension. You know, it takes the wear and tear off fire uh, apparatus. Um, I also am a firm believer that we should have three or four people on an ambulance, even if it's two paramedics and an EMT. One of my ideas was um, when you go into the academy, the academy should start in the summer, and that should be a good chunk of your academy is being third rider for the summer. You're going to learn a lot. <laughs> yeah, there's no – depends on who you're with. But uh, <laughs> there's no substitute for experience. There's no <laughs> doubt about it. Um, and, but you need good guidance. Uh, yeah. And I think, you know, the academy is, is doing the best they can. I, I offer myself to go down and teach. I know for this class, I did a 12-week class, and I enjoy going down there. Those guys got fast-tracked. They did get fast-tracked. Um, yeah. And is it fair? I, I don't know. Yeah. The big thing is they say they come in as paramedics. Right. Okay, they come in as, as paramedics, but are they good paramedics, right? When's the last time any of these people – I, I don't know that. What have you been doing for the last five years? The thing with our job right. is nobody's submitting a resume 
and they don't have people vouching for them. They don't have, you know, references and, okay, let's take the best of the best. It, it's Qualified what number did you get? Right. What number did you get? You know? Right. Um, I agree. I, I, I think where this all starts is in a hiring process. Uh, and I agree with you there, Vince. And there's no reason we shouldn't. And, and we're a very, very good EMS department. We're a good fire department. We do a very good job. But why aren't we the best? You know, um, and it would start with it, it. Hiring should start with a physical agility test. Do a psych test. You do a, a written general knowledge uh, test. And then you do a psychomotor test test, kind of almost like system entry. And then, based on that, then you can do a legitimate, uh, you know, scoring and start to rank those people. And then, you know, we can we still get military points, and maybe we should get points for different, uh, you know, college degrees, uh, ACLS, certain specialty classes, uh, and then actually make a legit eligibility class. That's fine. And then when we get them in, and then we teach them, you know, the Chicago policies and procedures, general orders. But again, make sure that when they walk out of that fire academy, that you would you would feel very comfortable that when they come into your house and treating one of your loved ones, that you have no concerns about that. What are your What are your feelings about if we, as a department, just cross trained everybody? So the crew in that house on the ambulance. Maybe they're on a rotation and everybody, you know, all the medics in that house. If that was the way it was, there'd be days I, I would look forward to being on the ambulance, you know, just a, you know, maybe I was on a company that wasn't that busy or, you know, just to get out of the house and do some work, um, you know, if we weren't going to fires or, you know, stuff like that. I think our department, you know, has heavy EMS as we are in Chicago. I think cross training everybody would be a big benefit. Um, yeah, you know, people can see a, a light at the end of the tunnel or actually diversity in their jobs. Hey, one day I'm on a truck company. I like doing truck work. One day I'm on an engine company. I like doing engine company uh, work and evolutions. And I love being on an ambulance. So if I get to be on an ambulance, you know, twice a month, a truck twice a month, and an engine twice a month, and, and float somewhere on the other two days, yeah, that would be good. And I always was a strong proponent of that. But I'm also a very strong proponent, as I got older and saw this department, of actually having a separate EMS department, their own rank structure, commissioner, and all the way down. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely seems as though the fire department kind of just took EMS, where, like, in a lot of ways, I'm sure people would say that EMS benefited from associating itself with fire departments around the country. But, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, I got to imagine it's held, it's held a lot back. I mean, there's, we, we go through rank structures and, and, you know, I've had this conversation with Vince before too, where like, does this rank mean the same thing on, on this side? And, and sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it means more, sometimes it means less. Like it's just in a lot of ways, again, I'm sure it helped. EMS gain traction, but uh, you almost wonder sometimes if it's held it back too. Well, and you could, if believe me, if this is open for phone calls, your 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 uh, phone bank would be lit up because some people feel <laughs> very strongly 
both ways about this. And I, you know what, right. I could depend both sides of this because, um, you know, I enjoy being in the fire service. I enjoy being in the firehouse, um, you know, so, and it did definitely help us along. Um, but, you know, they, they are kind of apples and oranges. I mean, the reason that uh, the ended up in the firehouse is because they had firehouses and they were centrally located. I mean, the ambulance uh, actually started with the police department. They were the ambulances came out of the police department. You see some of these old police stations; they still have a bay that says "ambulance" over it, and uh, that's where it started. But there's positives and negatives. There's no doubt about it. So you could argue both sides of this equally well. Hey Pete, did you ever meet Doctor Zidlow? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I was in Northwest Community System. Mm-hmm. We just had a gentleman who wrote the book about Dr. Zidlow, Paul Cialino, on our podcast a couple months ago, and we went over his book, uh, Dead in Six Minutes. Yeah, it's sitting right in front of me, actually. It's funny you said that. Oh, really? That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we we had him on the podcast. It, it, super entertaining podcast. Wouldn't you say, Corey? Oh, yeah, to say the least. <laughs> yeah. Say Paul, least. <laughs> Paul's, a, Paul's an entertaining guy. I, he actually presented at my conference uh, probably three years ago when he first came out with the book. Uh, we had oh, him out okay. there. Yeah, and he was very entertaining. Um, but, you know, if you're around EMS long enough, and Vince, you've been around a while, Troy, um, it's changed a ton. Uh, what we did 30 years ago would be medieval and criminal today. Give, a, give an example of that for people who are listening that aren't in EMS. My perfect example, uh, without uh, you know a graphic, might not carry the same weight, but there was a thing called an oral screw, uh, which <laughs> actually looked like a screw that you would put in the corner of their mouth. Oh, was that to open their teeth for a tube? Yeah, to open the airway. So you actually screwed it into their mouth. It was called an oral screw. Um, that was medieval. I mean, things like hair tractions and putting people on long wood boards and half boards and TED devices and, um, you know, a pericardiocontesis and things like that, intercardiac inter- epinephrine. I mean, I tell people uh, EMS, like in the 70s and 80s, was fun as shit. <laughs> we didn't, we didn't, we didn't save anybody, but it was fun as heck because you know you were starting too large IV. You know you're putting mass trousers on. Uh, you're you're given every drug under the sun. I, I tell people, you know, in the early '80s when you took ACLS, um, the acronym was Every Boy's Attitude Can Improve, which was Epi, Bicarb, Atropine, Calcium Chloride, and uh, Isoprel. You know. You could you could uh, exhume a body that's been in the ground for three days and, and get a pulse with that type of cocktail, uh, but <laughs> but nobody was living. And so if you look at what we're doing today, you know now there's just two drugs that we give in a cardi- in a uh, shockable cardiac arrest. That's an epinephrine and amiodarone, and you may see epinephrine go the way of a bertillium uh, in a year or two. They're not finding so? it. Yeah. I, Everything I read and the people that I talk to, that this is something that we might see go away is epinephrine. Here's the nice thing about EMS today. EMS today is a lot of evidence-based best practices. We're back in the 70s and the 80s. It was basically whatever people thought was going to do 
uh, you know, a, a, a good job with no science behind it. You know, now at least we're getting some science behind things and saying, you know what, that doesn't work. I've been on the soapbox to get rid of uh, lawn backboards for probably 10 years. They're harmful. They're criminal. We should not be putting people on backwards unless we're trying to get them off the streets. Not even that uh, that 80-year-old lady who's completely contorted and who fell down the stairs and you're trying to straighten her out on that backboard? You think she likes flying on that backboard? <laughs> that was that, that was the I mean, cruelest thing I've been ever forced to do. Like, yes. Because my protocols – and if I don't show up in that ER with this old lady on that backboard who fell down – I'm, yeah. you know, I'm getting a talking to. Yeah. And, and we're still there. Uh, that's still my protocol. And, and, you know, I have confidence, actually, some people may disagree with me. I have confidence in our medical directors that they're trying to do the best thing possible. You know, uh, some people may disagree with me and uh, I, I don't agree with everything that they've done, but they're trying to move us into, you know, the 21st century. Well, I've seen it since my you know, my short time on, I've seen that they're at least trying to do something. Um, you know, they're, they're trying to move us forward. Um, you know, and it, 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 at least there, there's effort being made to push us forward. And, you know, I'm, I'm on the program, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But again, on the other hand too, you know, they don't understand completely what we do out there and the stress that these people are under. And we're making life and death decisions in seconds and they have to be right. And they're not always right. You know, and the way sometimes people are getting scrutinized for that. I mean, there's situations that people have acted without malice or willful and wantonly trying to do their best. And even when they're trying to do their best, sometimes we make mistakes. And, but I, I know few people that are out there that are out there to harm people. They're out there to actually do uh, the best for the people. There, there's some great, great paramedics throughout this state in this metropolitan area that every day are just doing great jobs. Well, you can never take the human element out of being a paramedic or being an EMT or, um, you know, anybody who's going to work on another human, but you can't take that human element out. Yeah, it tries to. It tries to suck it out of you, you know, with, with what what some people see and how people are being treated out there, uh, you know, but I, I tell people every case is a different case, you, you know, don't have a certain set of uh, stereotypes or when you go into anybody's house, you know, don't have any predisposed attitudes. Go in there and let them set the rules. And once they, once you know the rules, you can yeah. play the game. I got a good dose of that um, being at the academy where I would, when the candidates came in, I'd have a, by looking at them, I'd have a predisposed image of, you know, if this guy was going to be good, if that guy was going to be good, this girl was. And of course, without fail, it was you know, somebody that I thought wouldn't be good and they come out and they're a rock star. Yeah. They are yeah. tough as nails. They are, yeah. like, you know, so y you can never judge a book by its cover on this job. You definitely have to give people chances to prove themselves. And, you know, as a, as a supervisor, you have to give them a chance to prove themselves. And then you also have to be there when they don't do the right thing that re-educate them. And hopefully they'll be able to correct that mistake. And the majority of people are out there, like I said, working very hard, 
trying to do their best. I don't know anybody out there that tries to cause anybody harm. And, uh, you know, I'm very proud to serve with those people. Well, let's, let's get back to your career, Pete. What year did you become a flight medic? Oh, a flight medic. So, um, so in 90, you know, I got hired by the fire department. I think it was shortly after that. I also got hired as a instructor in the EMS office at Loyola. So, um, I was out there teaching and it's actually one of my favorite things to do is, uh, teaching EMS. Uh, so Loyola was starting up a, uh, a flight program, Loyola Lifestar. So in the first round of interviews, I don't think I did interview for that. And they hired their initial staffing. And then people actually left or got hired by other departments and, and, and left. And they actually asked me uh, if I would be interested in, in uh, applying. And I did. And so I actually got hired as a flight medic probably in around 91, 92, somewhere in that area. It was a cool job. I did really, really like flying. Any uh, interesting stories from that point in your life? The thing I really enjoyed about being a flight medic was the amount of education that you got and the scope of practice uh, that we had. So, for example, we were allowed to put chest tubes in. Um, we did balloon pumping. Uh, you know, we did suturing. We did a lot of really cool stuff. So the educational component of that was really, really cool. For example, you know, we would go pick up somebody that was had a, a open heart surgery at one hospital and wasn't going really well. So they had a window, I forget what it's called, but his chest was open and they were on a bed and they were on drips and changing all those drips over and all that cool stuff, which I forgot probably 90% of how to do. Uh, that to me was really, really uh, cool. Um, and then you did get to do some fun stuff. Uh, like landing on the expressway and uh, pulling people out of tremendous erection. I just love how we talk as EMS providers that other people don't like the adjectives we use for certain things. Like, you know, that was a great car accident or that was, I had a great shooting. <laughs> Who uses those, right? Who uses those terms? Um, but that was a great experience and uh, I loved it. And uh, I, I flew probably for three and a half years, and it was really, really cool. Um, I don't know if I want to go up in a helicopter today, but uh, <laughs> it, it, it was fun. And from there, actually, I was uh, in a pre-hospital trauma class with actually Joanne Farrell, who now works in the Mark Division. At the time, she was working at Children's. And they were starting, they had JCO, and they came in, and one of the things they recommended is that they get more involved in EMS. And so um, they were going to hire an EMS coordinator, and Joanne actually asked me if I would be interested in And then, I mean, I'm telling you guys how lucky I have been to fall into these situations and just have, I mean, I have not done a job that I have not thoroughly enjoyed. So I had the opportunity to go then work as EMS coordinator at Children's, which was one of my favorite all-time jobs. I was there for uh, about six and a half years. And, and I always told my kids, hey, you want to be smart? Hang around smart people. And I've had great opportunities throughout my whole career to hang around with really, really smart people. Well, Pete, I, I, I also work there as well. And yeah. I, when people ask me about my experience there, I tell them 
that that was by far the best paramedic education that I ever got was working at a children's hospital. Um, yeah. The what? doctors and the nurses there were so like, they, they were so happy to educate you and oh, you know, they never, they never blew you off. It was always, I saw something that didn't make sense to me. A doctor, an actual doctor would take me aside and kind of run me through his train of thought and yeah. stuff like that. And it was the most amazing experience. I left there. And if you had any qualms about your IV skills, yeah. once you left children's, you could go put an IV in a dehydrated fly. You know, you were, you were at the top of your game. It was funny at children's because the paramedics were the IV team, even though we couldn't hook fluid to uh, the uh, catheter. But we were the IV team. We were emergency department partners. Right. Because we couldn't use our scope of practice as a paramedic. Right. It was actually EDP, which was emergency department paramedics. And um, that got switched around. But it it was probably six and a half of the greatest years. It was just the people were phenomenal. They still are. I'm still friends with a lot of them. Tony Balin's over there. Uh, He was one of my first hires. Uh, is an EDP and he's still there and he's just phenomenal. I, I can go on and on and on. And one of the things they asked me to do when I was there uh, was there was a uh, a telethon for children. And I forget the name of the uh, the two people that were in the morning. It was a, it a was, man. Um, and the Kathy, Eric and Kathy show. That was it. So they were doing uh, the marathon from children's the old children's i keep calling it children's and uh, the tel- the tel- they asked me right they asked me if i would go and, and talk on it and i said sure so i actually had my son patrick with me uh but what i told them there i said there's more magic that happens here on a daily basis than in disney world or disneyland it's amazing what goes on at that facility they're just phenomenal um so um yeah that was a great experience and I was there for about six and a half years. And then uh, we actually wrote the business plan uh, to become an associate hospital, which kind of wrote me out of the job because to be <laughs> an, uh, an EMS co- coordinator in an associate hospital, you have to be an RN back then. I, I'm not sure if that's still the regulation. So I kind of wrote myself out of a job. But um, they kept me there. It, it was just it was a, just a great experience. And I actually told Mo. Mariotti, who's the EMS coordinator now, that I actually thought about uh, going back and working as an EDP, uh, maybe one 12-hour shift a, uh, a week or something like that. Just a thought. Pete, <laughs> things, things keep on going with this corona thing. You're you're going to be back on an ambulance. On an ambulance? I don't think anybody would want to work here with me on an ambulance. I'm so decrepit, I couldn't lift or carry. But, uh, oh, you're going to nuts. Dry. So, there'd be people, there'd be lines out the door to work with you. <laughs> when did you leave Children's? I want to say early 2000s, somewhere around there. And, uh, 2003. Is that when I left? Well, if you started in 97, right? And you said you had six years? Did I start in 97? I, I don't know. You probably, chronologically, <laughs> I'm a mess. Um, but it, it, was some, it was somewhere around there. And, uh, you know, it, it was a great partnership. Uh, we did some fantastic things there. Uh, we did a thing called, uh, um, 
maltreatment, child maltreatment awareness for pre-hospital professionals. Uh, we got grant money to do that. Uh, we used to teach uh, PEP classes, PALS classes. Um, you know, uh, it, it was it, it was just a great time. Like I said, I've been very lucky throughout my whole EMS career to have jobs that I've loved and to work with people that have just been phenomenal. Uh, all my partners have always been great. Uh, so I've really, I've really lucked out. Where, where was your first assignment when you came out, Pete? So in 90, back then, nobody got assigned to a rig. You got assigned a relief. So I was third district relief, but very seldom was I in the third district. Uh, I was out most of the time. Uh, I remember early on, um, I was on four a lot. Um, my first shift, I was on ambulance 35. I did that, but I mean, I, I did work, you know, like 40 and I spent a year, uh, with John Harding, which was a great experience when his partner was laid up. So I spent almost a, a year on 31. And then when I got promoted to, I don't know if it was paramedic officer or PIC back then, um, then I went to the sixth district. That was sixth district relief. And, uh, you gotta understand too, back then, it went even waiting for me. There was nothing on the transfer order. You know, there was no movement going on. So you were stuck in relief uh, for years. And so I was relieving for five years. And then they went to the four shifts. And uh, then I lucked out and I got 15. So then I... <laughs> you know, and, and, I don't think anybody I, ever considered themselves lucky for getting an ambulance I, I was lucky. Um, but and 15 was a great experience. And, uh, you know, I worked with great people there. It was a great house. I loved it. Uh, but the thing is you got to be mentally prepared. I went to work knowing that, uh, you were going to get your head kicked in and you you do have to get your head right and be prepared to, uh, deal with what's out there. And you know what? Don't let things bother you. And it's easier said than done. It's easier. It's easy for me to sit in, uh, this room here talking to you guys retired and not have to have the worries that you guys do and say, yeah, you know, don't worry about it. Well, one of the things that the advice I give is just come to work with the expectation that you're going to get crushed. Yeah. Um, You know, don't give yourself that ounce of hope that you're going to have that day that everybody dreams about where you're going to sleep all night after midnight, just come to work and just expect to, you know, to take a beating and just go to work. It's kind of like the stages of grieving. Once you move into <laughs> acceptance, things are going to be okay. <laughs> right. Funny story. When we were on 15, actually, you know, I was double, I, I was double up there, but I was there all the time. And then I had two partners, uh, uh, Bill Passmore and uh, Maggie Murphy, who would switch alternate month by month. Uh, but once in a while they would, uh, send us out. Uh, I was, uh, um, striped out at the airport and so i think uh i don't know if maggie was but bill was and so once in a while they send us out to the airport and you know you go out there and remember one day uh, we were going to do a tarantino film festival and we probably got through half of like reservoir dogs we actually got beat up out there so like you say Vince, sometimes when you think you're going to have a good day uh, then you get more, I, I got more upset when I got a run out at the airport than when I was at 15, cause I expected it up out at 15. <laughs> you, know, but, uh, you knew it was coming. 
Yeah, I knew it. And I took my beating like a good man. I just went out there. <laughs> so you got promoted to paramedic officer or PIC, whichever it was at that time. And right. you went into relief again. And then you went south, right? Yeah, I went to 6th District Relief. So I think when I came on, you were you had just left 33 and okay. you had gone downtown? So I never really was at 33. So let's backtrack. So I was 6th District <laughs> Relief. Uh, then, you know, so yeah, like on my uh, uh, retirement, it listed all my assignments and it listed uh, Ambulance Commander at 33. And the poor guy that actually was there who was doing my job um, um, says, yeah, he was never at 33. Uh, but so I, I was in the 6th District. Then uh, when they went to the four shifts, I went to 15. I was there. Uh, for, I, I want to say, six and a half, seven years, somewhere in that area. From there, I went to 42 uh, downtown. I think I was at 42 for seven or seven and a half. I think that's when I met you, Pete. Yeah. Because I, uh, yeah. I I think I graduated in 08. Yeah. And I remember I was, uh, I rode with you a couple times downtown, and it seemed like that was that was your crew. Or at least you were a well-liked enough guy that everyone was your crew. But it seemed like those were your guys. It, I, I liked it down there. Uh, a lot, not a lot of people like working downtown. I like working downtown uh, because you really got a wide variety of stuff. Um, you know, there was days that you did the same thing over and over and over. But then there'd be days where, you know, um, one of my favorite stories is we had a uh, – the guy they were putting the air conditioning unit on a 20 or 25 story building and it they swung it and they knocked this guy and they knocked him out and he's kind of like hanging out over and we went up there we had to take one of those elevators that are on the side of the building so it's not a full elevator and uh, so we got up there they had to hook us in crawled out there and i'm not a big fan of heights here folks and i got this kind <laughs> of board so now we're thinking well how are we going to get this guy down so they bring up one of those baskets and they hooked it to a crane and they lifted us off the roof and over like 25 stories and just lowered us down. Who was your partner, Pete? Uh, my partner was Jerry Root at the time. And uh, the one thing I yelled at him about that call was he didn't have a camera. I don't know if cameras could take pictures <laughs> at the time, but there's not a picture of that. Uh, but Jerry and I, and I loved working with Jerry downtown because Jerry knew how to get everywhere. If you ask anybody, that worked with me, I am geographically challenged. If I come out of the firehouse and I'm supposed to go right, I will go left. I don't know where I'm going. So Jerry knew how to get everywhere. The only thing that was bad is when he was on furlough and I had a candidate, then I had to try to find my way around downtown. Um, but uh, other than that, I mean, I, I did a lot of nonsensical stuff downtown, but uh, I was at the 69 West Washington fire, the Chestnut fire, the South Street, uh, South Bank fire, um, and saw some really, really heroic uh, work by people. That brings us to one of the questions that was asked by someone on our social media who actually sent in a question for you. Wow. Um, it's kind of it's kind of long, but they want to hear. It's basically they're asking about if you – can tell us the story about, um, I guess you caught some time oh, for um, giving the Versed slash Valium uh, well, and morphine so that you could, is that something you want to talk well, about? I mean, it's not like they can suspend me anymore. Um, so <laughs> what it was, and again, it was downtown, it was lower Columbus. Um, 
you know, the person that you really should talk to is Jerry Root. Jerry remembers all this stuff. I, I don't, can't remember how I got into this room and how I'm going to get out of here. But um, <laughs> it, was, it was Lower Columbus, and it was a car accident. It was actually two cousins. One was in a convertible, and I do remember this, BMW, and the other one was in a Mercedes SUV. And they were racing down Lower Columbus, and they tapped each other. And one of them, you know how they have the poles down there? Yeah. And uh, they they smacked one smacked into a pole. Um, the guy and girl that were in the BMW she snapped her neck. So when I went up there, her you know there was no signs of life in her neck. There was no stability. Uh, the other gentleman from that car was thrown out of the vehicle, and we obviously had a head injury in the season. Now Jerry went to the SUV. And uh, he gets those two out, sits them on the curb to assess them. And this is the only time I've seen this in my career is that that SUV blew up just like it was in the movies, just like it was the A-Team. That car blew up. So now it's just Gary and I down there. And, you know, Jerry's getting on the radio calling for companies. And I'm out in the street with this gentleman. And it was actually a very nice nursing student or it might have been a resident who was actually assisting me. So we got caught out. Jerry's dealing with the other two. I get him on the backboard, move him to the back of the rig. I try to ventilate him. He's clenched down. It's Christmas. He's clenched down so bad. I can't ventilate him. I can't innovate him. That's when I needed the old oral screw, which I didn't have. And that, that, you know, I had, I had to make a decision. How do I manage this airway? Now, again, this is where we are making decisions in seconds that, you know, are going to either save them or going to have a detrimental impact on the outcome on him. So, and I always tell people, now, when you're about to do something, ask yourself a couple questions. Is this in the patient's best interest? Is it going to cause them any harm? I tell people the two biggest questions you should ask yourself. Is this in the patient's best interest? And can I protect this in a court of law? Can I defend this in a court of law? So I asked myself that question. And I said, if I sedate them, because he's now actively seizing, if I sedate them, can I manage his airway? So I made that decision. I went ahead. Uh, no fault to Jerry. Jerry was not even in the rig with me. I went ahead, started an IV, uh, gave him uh, sedation, managed his airway, and uh, caught time on that. But it wasn't a lot of time. So it's uh, it's. I mean, it's pretty interesting that. I mean, you're you basically got jammed up for deviation of protocol, right? Yeah, I mean, technically, I didn't have a medical legal leg to stand on. I think I could have defended it. You know, uh, there were certain people uh, that doctors that would say, Pete, listen, if you want to take this and defend yourself, I'll come up and I'll defend you. And uh, I said, you know, no, that's fine. Um, <laughs> it took my time and that, that was fine. You know, uh, it, it's, it's a, and it was funny because then we were at um, the South Bank fire and it was funny because we had a lot of people that were, um, sick at that fire, and uh, one of the medical, or, or actually, our medical director at the time. Well, how do I put it? She was in the mark division at the time, Paula Willoughby, 
actually came up to me and said, hey, do you have your narcotics? And I said, well, what do you need my narcotics for? She said, in case we have to innovate anybody. I said, whoa, back it up here. So <laughs> I can't do that. And uh, But uh, she said, oh, well, I you know, defended you. And I said, well, thank you very much. But that's the story on that. Well, it, that you know, that, that came in uh, from Scott Falafis. Thank you, Scott, for that question. Thank you, Scott. Um, <laughs> Thanks for bringing up that bad memory. Actually, actually, that that person lived. Actually, that guy oh, lived. Did, you're yeah, not embarrassed to tell. No, he, he did live because we actually, uh, Terry and I, had to go to court, and uh, there he was, standing alert and awake, facing a DUI. So. <laughs> Which he would gladly take because he was alive to do it. No kidding. So actually, now that I am retired, I can tell you this story, uh, and Jerry will verify it. So we get called <laughs> to a platform at Lake Street, and he he would know the other street. I want to say it's like Dearborn or something, but the L runs right along this building. So we get called for a man down. So. We don't know where this guy is. And so I looked up, and there's a woman like seven stories up leaning over her rail, and she's saying, is he okay? I said, who's okay? And she points. So about two stories up was this, like, platform. So this guy, so we get up there, and I look down at this guy, and I go, this guy's a mess. And I look up, and she goes, is he all right? I said, do you know him? She said, yeah. I said. Did he fall from there? She said, yeah. So he'd been drinking, sitting on a rail and fell, landed. So this is true. So landed five stories and landed on this, you know, overhang or platform or whatever. And now we're trying to figure out how to get down to him. Well, first of all, I went out thinking that this, this guy's dead until he started moaning. So we actually, what we did is we took uh, some truckman's belt and we hooked it. And Jerry and I went over the rail like Batman and Robin. <laughs> and uh, that, that was, I didn't get in trouble, but that was another time that we actually sedated somebody to manage their airway. Jesus. Well, <laughs> yeah, so like I said, working downtown, you did a lot of boring stuff, but there was a lot of fun stuff. Have you heard the stories about you intubating nine people at one incident? <laughs> I heard the story, yeah. <laughs> is there any substance I, to that story? Um, yeah, there is substance to that. All right. So let's let's get uh, again, let's get on that story. Okay. So we get uh, sent out to a different area. Actually, it was in a, a fifty threes area. They were out uh, doing something on another run, and we get sent there. And this is when you were still on forty two. I'm on forty two, right, Vince? Okay. And so we get sent out for into fifty threes for a sick woman, and she really was sick. But as we're leaving, they're toning out for this fire. And I remember Jerry looking over and said, oh, we're going to miss this fire. But I said, you know, hey, in your career, you're going to be at a lot of fires. And who knows? It's downtown. A lot of that stuff never turns out. So we go and we take care of this woman who is actually was very sick. So um, we take her. I think we went to St. Mary's. And we're returning. Now, while we're on this run, you know, shit has hit the fan. And all these companies, they're all going to this fire. And we're on our way back. And at this time, it might have even been, I don't know if uh, Jerry would know better. It might be a Mavis box, but uh, they, they got a lot of companies there. And uh, we're coming back. And I remember uh, Tommy Goretti was on the radio. And 
he's looking for somebody to handle an accident. And we said we would take it, but he goes, you know, hang on, Pete, you're the only one that's downtown that knows where to go downtown. So we got back to the firehouse. We're, we're there a minute, and they send us to um, 69 West Washington, and we're just standing by. And so to describe describe what the building is at 69 West Washington. So you're assigned the Ambulance 42, which is downtown, like right in the heart of downtown. Right. And you're getting called to a – It's at 55 West Illinois. So exp- explain to them the building that you went to. So the building is a multiple-story – it was the county building. It's the Cook County building. Uh, so it's the government offices that are in there. I, I can't tell you how many stories, Vince, and I'm, I'm terrible, uh, but it's probably over but 20. But it's, it's not a residential house. It's, it's not residential. Building. It's Right. Absolutely. It's commercial. It's, it's houses, county offices. So we're uh, now toned out to this fire. But at this point in time, they actually have been on uh, radio. They've been on TV. They struck it out. Um, they've told people that there's nobody injured, everybody's fine, and, you know, they're starting to send companies home. So we're, Jerry and I are just standing out front, and um, I think it was Chief Reka at that time, and he just told me that they were bringing out a fireman who had a facial laceration, and let's take him over to Northwestern, and then when we were done, just go ahead and clear and return to quarters. I said, that's fine. So we get the injured firemen. It's nothing really bad. We pass them up a little bit. We take them over to Northwestern and I complete my paperwork and we are heading out the door and I hear for an EMS plan one back at the fire. So Jerry and I are in the rig and we start heading back there. We're not in the rig, you know, a minute. Well, explain to people uh, an EMS plan one, you're getting five ambulances right off the bat. Five initial ambulances, right. Right. You're getting, you're getting another fire engine, another fire truck, right. a, a, two, two other chiefs. So it it's for something big. A plan one means that something bad has happened. More than 400 firefighters, <laughs> one third of the Chicago's fire department. Yes. And 25 suburban communities responded to this call. Is that what you had? Is that 25 That's suburban? That's what I'm finding here. Yeah, you're, you're correct. Yeah, There's... burning more than five hours. Yeah, so we get back there, and uh, like I said, we had, well, we end up transporting the firemen to Northwestern. We're en route back, and when we're en route, uh, they call for an EMS plan, too. Now, I looked to Jerry, and I said, Jerry, one of two things happened here, or a couple of things have happened here. One, there's a fireman down, or two, they're starting to find dead people. So we get there, and uh, Jerry and I, we both agree, let's load everything we have and bring it in. So every oxygen tank we had, all the equipment we could carry, we threw onto our um, stretcher. So as we enter to the lobby, and again, we're met by, you know, certain people that are trying to tell us, do this, do that, do that. I, I haven't met a field chief, and the field chief on the scene there, there was some great heroic stuff. John Marsden did a great job. Roxanne did a great job um, supervising it. There were just some unbelievable, uh, unbelievable work being done there. So as Jerry and I enter, we enter and then we come around to the bank of elevators. Now, guys, when I made that turn, there were like dead people stacked up like coal wood. Um, 
people in respiratory arrest, cardiac arrest. And again, now we're triaging who? You were the first ambulance to go back to or to respond now, to the plan? First one back, yeah. I, I think 28 might have still been on the scene. Some ambulances, but 28 might have been up um, on a, a support floor. And so they were not in the lobby. Nobody knew this was going on in the lobby. Well, I think back in the day, right, Pete, the the first ambulance would go to like two floors be- below the fire Correct. floor? Correct. Right? Wasn't that the protocol back then? Right. I'm pretty sure that's where 28 was. Um, and then, um, so Jerry and I entered the lobby, and uh, we had to make some hard decisions there. But we did end up managing several airways in a short period of time. Uh, there was enough companies there with equipment that once they were innovated, they were able to ventilate them. And um, there was some very strong EMS work and, and fire work done, uh, but there was really, really some strong work done at that uh, fire. So w- what had, what had happened? They they struck it out. They're telling you to go home. What? Where was the yeah. disconnect here? So people got trapped in the stairwells. Those doors locked. And once the fire was controlled, I guess they were finding people in the stairwell because the doors locked behind them and they couldn't from get back top. in. Yes, from the top. And I just remember um, coming around and then there was, you know, like I said, several people in respiratory uh, arrest that we managed airway. And then, um, then the uh, elevator opened and they brought several more people either in cardiac arrest or respiratory arrest out. So I think in the initial five, 10 minutes, um, we did several innovations and uh, managed airways. And I think there was 11 respiratory and cardiac arrest in that area. And I think nine of them actually lived in the area. That- so like, you don't have to do any triaging because all those people there are already blacks, right? Um, in well, the triage blacks category. Are, however you want to look at it. Yeah. Um, they were very, very sick. So we did have to make some, you know, tough decisions on um, who was going to be treated first. We managed people that were in respiratory arrest first and uh, people with smoke inhalation, we managed them. And uh, it wasn't like we were, short of manpower we had tons of fire um, companies that were more than willing to assist and uh, did a great job and you had enough equipment to to get that all done because i know you couldn't pull that off with just your bag uh well i remember jerry saying pete i had nine tubes and i got two left so <laughs> <laughs> well you so, have nine tubes but or you don't have nine eights no, and nine we were seven work, and a half we were working now, we were working out of everybody's bags. So the ALS companies, we were working out of everybody's bag. And I remember um, the captain of the squad at the time, um, Bill Duffy, and uh, he was going back up. And he turned to me and said, hey, we're going back up. And I said, okay, hang on. Let me grab my bag. Um, I had nothing left in the bag. And I remember Roxanne saying, Pete, that's it. Stop. And uh, we're done for now but companies went up there and you know i can see these companies and they did unbelievable jobs you know it was and because it was shrouded in all this you know political stuff 
the job that uh, was done, the excellent job, really never got out to the public. That uh, the strong work that was done on that day. It's awesome. It's uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's incredible. See, it just just this operation. I mean, uh, again, looking at it, this is this is something you know. This is this is a bad day for you, Pete. You know, but I mean, look, this is a piece of firefighting and paramedic history right here that people you know people would have no idea well pete any lessons as a kid i had no idea when i first met you yeah uh, there was a lot of lessons learned there and uh, you know a lot of things changed after that especially in firefighting you know i i think the company's doing a much better job now after fires like that uh handling high-rise fires uh from the ems standpoint um one thing I, I saw there was there was a lot of really brave people that went that went rogue uh, there, and because they did, uh, lives were saved. Um, but uh, you know, as you said, Corey, it was a bad day for me. It was a challenging day for me. It was a bad day for the people that died in those families. Uh, me, it was a challenging day, uh, and you know. These are challenging days now. These what these people are facing today uh, out there. It's just really, really tough. Let me ask you this: Were you involved in your your teaching of intubation and stuff like that at this point in your career, or have oh, yeah. you not moved into that that part of your your career yet? No, no, we were doing airway management uh, probably in the early nineties. We st- uh, actually established the airway obstacle course and uh, difficult airway management um, probably in the early 90s we started to address that so it um, was just luck that those people in that lobby wind up having you show up there um i i, I don't know there i think i think anybody would have probably you know if it wasn't me you know uh jerry would have been doing it and i would have been assisting him i just I think I was probably the first one to grab the uh, blade and handle, and uh, he did a great job of uh, helping. And and uh, like I said, the roles reversed. He would have done it, and you, Vince, you would have done it. All you guys would have done it. You know, it's just um, things that make you stand out are the circumstances that you're put in front of, and then how you manage those and how you mitigate those. And that's where you know that's where training comes in. Yeah, I was probably lucky because I did have a lot of airway management experience. Uh, and part of uh, the flight team at Lifestar, you know, we had to show competency um, through going in and, and um, going to uh, operations, you know, uh, operation suites and doing uh, innovations with anesthesiologists. And, you know, in the ER, we had to do innovation. So, I had the opportunity, like I said, to be around a lot of really, really good people that shared all their talents and knowledge with me. And uh, so I I was very lucky at that point to uh, have all that experience. And and Surround yourself by people that are smarter than you. Right. That's that's absolutely. And I've had the great opportunity to be around really, really smart people and people with great experience. Well, Pete, you you know, you talk about, education and training and you were basically responsible for that movement of the Chicago fire department into the sim lab and kind of, kind of run us through that, that part of history with the sim lab, because, um, 
you know, you you kind of you kind of were the movement behind that. So tell us a little bit about the Simulab as it pertains to the Chicago Fire Department. First, let me just say that I'm giving too much credit for the Simulab. The Simulab was actually Leslie Stein Spencer. She actually pushed for that Simulab. And um, two other people, Mark Levinson, and uh, actually the commissioner at the time, um, Mr. Brooks, they were uh, conduits for that. But actually the person that really pushed for that was Leslie Stein Spencer. Now, here's the thing. Uh, Leslie knew my uh, educational background, and so did Mark Levinson. And they asked me uh, if I would come down there and oversee this. So it was a tremendous opportunity that I had that I was able to, from the ground floor, be on board with the SimLab. So I was lucky enough that I was able to um, work with them, design that, um, you know, oversee the, the purchase of equipment, develop of curriculum, and uh, that that was a, a great opportunity for me, and I really enjoyed that. And, and we, you know, some fine work was done there too. The development of Incident Command for Cardiac Arrest, um, that program was phenomenal. The way that people accepted that, because that was a drastic change um, in behavior, you know, from the way we were doing it to the way that we were asking you to do it. And uh, there were a lot of people involved besides the people I've already mentioned, like Joe Weber was involved and there was a medical director. Well, he was assistant medical director, Eric Beck. I don't know if you remember Eric. No. He was really involved in the airway management course. So the first class we did uh, in the sim lab, we actually did a airway management class. Were you around when we did that? So that would have been in 2009. You were around, right? Uh, 2010 is when I came out. Oh, okay. So 2009, and probably went into 2010, we actually brought all the single role paramedics on and we did the innovation obstacle course. That was the first class that Commissioner uh, Levinson wanted us to roll out, and we did that. So we actually looked at, um, we actually looked at our first pass innovation success rate, and it wasn't really good. It was like in the low 60s. And um, post-class, uh, and we did a lot of studies post with innovation um, uh, forms that you had to fill after every innovation, and we found out that our innovation rent went from 60 to uh, 90% first-time pass. Oh, that's crazy. So we saw a change in behavior, and um, the problem was is that we, didn't, we weren't able to maintain uh, the amount of um, – competency that you need to. I mean, you need to be in there. You should be innovating. You should be in that sim lab probably uh, once every three months. Well, what do you what do you say to the people who say that we should take innovations out of EMS altogether? Well, look at the science. That's, you know, uh, I'm a huge fan of innovation. I think innovation is probably the best way to manage an airway. But again, there are dangers, inherent dangers uh, with innovation, esophageal innovation, you know, we were stopping CPR. Um, so you have to look at, I mean, if you look at my last month before I retired, if you ask my crews, I probably innovated eight to 10 people in my last couple of weeks because I knew I was retiring. And so uh, I would always say, hey, I'm going to innovate. Let me innovate. <laughs> um, I was going to get them on a, my way out. But you have to look at the evidence. You know, uh, there's some studies, and there's two big ones, the airway study. Um, there was an airway and then an airway two study. 
And we're not exactly clear and sure what is the best way to manage an airway. Um, I was one of the proponents initially with instant command for cardiac arrest. Uh, I'll take blame that I pushed for a uh, superglottic airway <laughs> for a couple reasons. One, you didn't have to stop compressions to place the superglottic airway. And plus, our BLS companies could put them in. So we were finding that they were, the majority of the time, were the first ones to arrive on the scene. So by the time the ALS ambulance got there, they probably have an advanced airway in. They've probably been shocked once or twice if they were in a shockable rhythm. And that, we found out, was saving lives. And you guys know where we were and where we are now. You know, back... Yeah, we, we weren't good for a long time. We were not good. And not because it wasn't trying. We were trying, but we were just doing the wrong things. So, you know, when you dive into it, and there was a lot of people that dove into cardiac arrest. I mean, for years, every day, um, you know, Joe Weber and I talked about cardiac arrest. And the other thing that was wonderful about that class was the assembly of just really, really dedicated people that threw uh, everything they had into teaching that class. And I don't want to miss anybody, but it was Eric Griswold, uh, Petty Wood, um, J.D. Giovanni, uh, Kevin Benton, uh, then Rebecca Boyd, and, you know, L take, is taking over. And, and hopefully I didn't miss anybody. Um, but that was a dedicated crew that really threw, uh, you know, a lot of their passion into that. And, uh, and we saw results. We're seeing them today. I mean, I, I'm just proud that I was a component of the Incident Command for Cardiac Arrest. Um, well, I mean, we also ran several other classes out of weapons of mass destruction. We did a neonatal class. Um, we got the mobile sim lab. We, we brought that, uh, we built a sim, uh, an ambulance simulator, uh, down to, uh, Clinton Street and we were bringing companies down every day. That's the kind of thing that needs to be done. And here's the thing about simulation, you know, uh, a neurologist will tell you that when you're faced with a situation, you're going to search your hard drive for any information how to mitigate that. Now, if you don't have any experience, there's nothing to fall back on. So what simulation does, it puts you in virtual reality. I tell people it's like building these file folders. Like if I take you in there, Vince, and I run you through a pediatric seizure over and over and over and over again, that the next time you actually have that, your mind's going to say, oh, yeah, I've been there. I've done that. And this is how it's done. And it builds a comfort level. And so, you know, I, I'm just a huge fan of simulation. And I think that that sim lab should be open 24 hours and run around the clock. But, again, you know, it, it's staffing it and getting them the help to do that. Well, I, I can I can speak from experience about the benefits of the sim lab. Do you remember one of our last interactions when I called you up and asked to come down? Yes. Do you, do you recall the circumstances that actually made me make a phone call to you at the sim lab? I do. Um, do for, for the, for the listeners listening, I, I got yeah. myself into a, a bad call where, um, for, I, I guess we're going to consider this a SIDS baby. And yep. Um, I just had the hardest time intubating this baby 
And, you know, like, and thank God that I had my um, uh, children's memorial background. Yeah. And, you know, like I was told, you know, children do really well ventilating with um, a BVM, a bag valve mask to manage their ventilations. And so I, I was a little more comfortable that, you know, I couldn't get this intubation as hard as I tried. And it, it took so much of me just to stop trying and just make the decision to just go with ventilating with a bag valve mask. Um, and here's the thing about that. I remember Vince in, in our conversation about that, you know, too often we end up beating ourselves up about certain things. And um, the thing is knowing when to do the right thing. Um, you know, it's not a pride thing. Hey, I got to get this innovation and we're, we're wasting time. You got to think about what's in the patient's best interest. You know, too often it's about me, not about the patient. And everything we should do starts with what's best for the patient. So in that situation, innovation probably would have been best. But you know what? Vince was smart enough that he said, hey, you know what? I can't do this or it's a difficult area. And kids are not easy to innovate. Uh, anatomically, there's so much different. And plus, just the stress of dealing with a pediatric innovation, uh, that realizing that, hey, you know what? What's best for this kid is let's go ahead and let's bag about masking and uh, ventilate it. Absolutely. I've seen that reference a bazillion times about the basketball player that's trying to make the, the free throw, you know, yeah. the three-point shot, and he keeps on going back, keeps on going back and back and back, trying to make this shot, and, and who are they doing it for? You know, is it, is it the best interest of the team or is it the best interest of yourself? And, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a funny story is that one time I was presenting out at a conference in Milwaukee, and I think I was speaking probably on cardiac arrest. And the gentleman that was speaking after me was talking on an interesting subject. He was talking about does a person's survival rate depend on the amount of paramedics on the scene and he showed a graph that as more paramedics showed up on the scene the chance of survival actually decreased and i'm going what the heck does that mean so when he went on further to explain it 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 starts to make sense for example with innovation if you and i are there and innovation is a cool tool it's a sexy thing to do we all like to do it if Corey, you're innovating and i'm standing there i'm going you know what I hope he misses. I hope he misses because what do I want to do? I want to innovate. So Corey misses the first time. What's Corey going to do? I'm, I'm going. I'm going to do it again. And so he misses. Right. I try. I may miss. So now we have multiple attempts on a, 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 a skill or an intervention that right now might not be the most important thing to do. So we weren't doing things like defibrillation or compressions. We were more concerned about our pride in getting that uh, ET tube. So that's one of the reasons when we went to incident command for cardiac arrest, we looked at how should we manage the airway, and we thought one of the best things would be a supraglottic airway. Then we wouldn't stop doing compressions. Now, if you're good at intubation and you can intubate, I'm all for it. And, you know, uh, don't stop uh, compressions. Uh, So there's still, you know, uh, we're still looking at what is the best way to manage the airway? And uh, so, again, 
let's have evidence based. But the big thing with all this is uh, how do we maintain competency? That's the big thing. I mean, there's people that are out there that innovate 50, 20 times a year, and then there's people that don't innovate at all. So how do you maintain competency? And the thing is, when you are in front of a, a, an attorney, you know, who's going to, you know, question you about a wrongful death suit or an esophageal innovation, he's going to hold you the same standards as an anesthesiologist, you know? So, right. And he's going to hold you the same standards to someone who, who's innovating, like you said, 50 times a year, you know, versus someone who's maybe only doing it five times. You're a paramedic is a paramedic is a paramedic. Right. Yeah. Like everything that you've been saying, Pete, you know, it's like training, you build that muscle memory and and you're just, you get into, you know, you get into the point where you're in Vietnam vet mode and you just think back to, this is, this is what I remember. This is what I've done a a million times. And after, after over overcoming this uh, or after um, encountering this problem, I've overcame it by doing this and and I'm at an impasse now. I've, I've never been able to get past after four attempts this is the time to disconnect and start yeah well i don't know if we should be doing four attempts but uh we used well, to do right, it yeah, all no. the, yeah <laughs> we used to do it all the time and that's where you know the old adage, adage of practice makes perfect in my i do a class called the dam class it's difficult airway management class and i have a picture of tony gwynn the late tony gwynn and the reason i have him there is because Tony Gwynn hit off a tee every day a thousand times. Even on game days, he hit off a tee a thousand times. Kyle Ripken Jr. said he didn't stop hitting off a tee until the day he retired. And that's what we need to do, is we need to continue to improve our skill set. But that comes down to training. You know, we have to have more access to high-quality training. And the Sim Lab, you know, is, is... a great, you know, um, opportunity for us. But again, we have to staff it. We have to get the manpower to to do that. I mean, to me, that's the most important uh, piece of uh, EMS is our ability to train and train effectively and be prepared. You know, I always say have a plan, practice the plan, and then stick to the plan. So definitely want to talk about um the the geneva convention you know and kind of kind of get oh. the history of that how did that whole thing start pete the geneva convention this year would actually have been the 36th year for the geneva convention uh, this wow. is only the second yeah this is only the second time that it's actually had to be canceled so the geneva convention was started by my paramedic instructor her name was pat Staple. she was from uh Loyola and uh in Maywood, and I met her because that's where I went to uh, paramedic school. So she ran that for several years uh, out in the Geneva, uh, Lake Geneva area at different uh, resorts out there. So she used to ask me to come out and present. So I would go out there and present for her. And uh, after about the 20th year, she actually approached me and another gentleman about maybe taking it over because her and her husband – uh, we get a little bit older, and they wanted to uh, kind of just retire. And uh, I said, yeah, I, I thought it was a good idea at the time. Yeah, let's take it. I'm thinking, you know, this should be easy. I just got a couple of speakers, and, well, it wasn't <laughs> that say, You don't have enough going on. What's yeah, so uh, it wasn't quite that easy. So the initial few years was actually challenging. 
um, once, you know, and it was very taxing on uh, my family because they were licking stamps and sealing em- uh, envelopes because we were doing all the advertising, uh, all the advertisement by mail. So we were sending out brochures by mail. So tell people that what they what they get at the conference, Pete. Like explain to them what what you 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 come to this conference. What what's in what's in store for you? Well, it, it's turned into be just a tremendous conference, and I'm not saying that because I run it. Basically, now I run it. Actually, my wife runs it. I just kind of you know secure speakers. She does all the administrative work. We run this right out of our house. But what Vince is getting at, what you get if you uh, sign up for the Geneva Convention. First of all, we are now running uh, pre-con. So this year would have been the third year that we did, no, fourth year we did a pre-con. We actually did uh, two years of 12 lead. Oh, this is the fifth year of pre-con. We did two years where we did on Thursday uh, a six-hour 12 lead class. Then we did a cabnography class. Then uh, we did a pre-con on incident command for cardiac arrest. And this year, then we did a trauma skills lab last year, which was phenomenal. We had unbelievable um, people from throughout the country uh, speaking on trauma topics. We did hands-on. We had pig plucks. We did difficult innovations. Uh, it was just tremendous. Uh, this year, we actually were going to do a pediatric pre-con, uh, which was, again, a six-hour, and we had all kinds of pediatric experts throughout the country, and actually internationally, too. We had a gentleman coming down from Canada. So you can always attend the pre-con. Like, this year, we were going to do a um, six-hour pediatric pre-con. It was only $50. Uh, then the conference itself would start on that Friday, and uh, it's, I think, six hours. It starts at eight, and we're done by five. But, folks, I've been very, very lucky to obtain some of the best national and international speakers. I call it the biggest little conference in the world because nowhere Anywhere in the country, I can get speakers like I have. Um, I have Tim Hillier. He's from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Uh, we have Dr. Bukhari, who is the trauma burn uh, chair from Cook County. Dr. Polykidis, who's a burn surgery a surgeon from County and from uh, Rockford Memorial. Uh, I have Bob Page, Terry Campbell from UCAN. So, Vince, how often? So, you're doing 12 hours on the uh, COVID-19 ambulances? Yeah. And are so they, are they staffed twenty four? No, we'll do two twelve hours, then we'll get two days off, and then we'll do three twelve hours. And like every other weekend we get a three day weekend. Like right now I'm on my three day weekend. But um it's uh I mean I'm I'm liking the schedule, but um like I said, it's uh it's making me more, and you know what's worse? The worst thing about this, Pete, is the psychological warfare. Oh, absolutely. Because I'll get home and I'll like not feel good. Like maybe I'll have a tickle in my throat or something like that. Yeah. Or I'll yeah. sneeze and I'm like, oh my god, I got it. You know, and then I'm fine. But anytime I start feeling any sort of minor, tiny little symptom, like my mind goes to me winding up on a ventilator. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I can understand that. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, let, let's finish here. You have any advice that you can give to these new guys that are coming on? Cause you really have educated a ton of people out there. 
that are in this business. And when we spoke on the phone earlier today and you were kind of shocked that people were requesting you like crazy. Yeah, I was a little shocked at that. But, uh, you know, from these other podcasts, you know, we kind of put it out there, letting our listeners know that, hey, we want to put people on here who you want to listen to. And your name kept coming up over and over again. So it's an honor to have you on. And with um, working with you and going over runs with you and stuff like that, I think you're one of the, the good people out there. And what can you offer to people who are new to this job and people who have time on, but anything that you can give them? Cause you know, you've been through every part of this job. Any words of wisdom? Well, thanks for the kind words first. Uh, that's really nice. Um, what I tell people is that this is a compassionate profession. You know, this is a profession where people are calling us, you know, at what they figure is their worst moment. You know, and our ability to bring some hope uh, to these people through kindness and compassion and empathy, you know, and sometimes it's really, really difficult to do because of how we're treated sometimes and the amount of volume of runs. But if you can just every time think about this as a compassionate profession to be kind, I would uh, every day in the morning. And you can ask the crews that I supervise um, that I would end every day by saying, be smart. I mean, be safe, be kind, look sharp, and let's do good in the hood. And the biggest thing is to be kind. It's hard all the time. I struggle with it. Uh, but if we can just remember that this is a compassionate uh, profession that we decided to um, partake in and to be kind uh, you know, that's the best thing I can give for advice is be empathetic, be compassionate, be kind, and, and work at your profession. This is a profession. It's a craft that needs practice and training and keep up on it, you know. Uh, pick up a journal, read something, go to a class, uh, you know, try to be the best that you can be at this. And, and good things are, are going to happen for you. Uh, that's probably the best I can tell you, Vince. Sorry, you know. I think we'll leave it there, but um, before we go, if somebody wanted to get to your conference, when it comes up, how can they find information on it? What's the best way for them to go about, you know, and if you guys are out there listening, take that obstacle course, um, you'll uh, you'll be humbled. <laughs> uh, thanks. Uh, the best way to find out about the conference is uh, I do actually have a website it's called www.emsp, so it's emspete.com, um, and that has all the conference information. Right now, it's um, just stating that it's been canceled for this year. We are actually looking ha- at least having one more, and that will be the last weekend of March in 2021. Um, so I will get information on that website as soon as we nail down all the information about that. Do you have any social media out there? Well, just a website. I, I mean, I, I need to get somebody who actually is uh, pretty good at doing social media and uh, have them help me with this. But uh, usually, like I said, it is a mom and pop operation. Uh, we do the best we can. The greatest thing about the conference is the uh, one, the ability to network with other professionals, other peers, and the quality of education that you can get here. Uh, I have not taught at my own conference for the last, I think, 
outside of the pre-con for the last two or three years because there's no room for me. These people are just so good that I, I can't I can't bump any of them uh, just to feed my ego. Uh, so uh, hopefully uh, we'll have it next year, and hopefully we'll be able to see you guys out there. Thank you again, Pete. Anytime, you guys, and, and really just you know be careful out there and you know be safe. And I, I really appreciate what you guys are doing. And it was an honor to work with every one of you. All right, thank you, Pete. Thanks, guys. Have a great night. Pete, thank you so much. You too. It's a pleasure. You bet. Uh, pleasure is mine. Thank you. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. You can download this episode on iTunes, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and TuneIn. Thanks for joining us. We'd also like to thank the Missing Chums for their musical contribution to the podcast with the song, Yes You May. Hey guys, if you're a first responder or you know a first responder that has a story to tell, we'd love to hear it. Please reach out to us at Chicago's Bravest Stories on Facebook or Instagram. Hey everybody, it's Steve here. I'd like to talk to you about another awesome company that helps bring the podcast to you free of charge. Chicagoland CPR. It's a first responder owned and operated CPR company. As a first responder myself, I can't express to you enough how important CPR training is for everybody in the community. They offer real customizable world-class education for all their clients. They have a combined 30 plus years of field experience as fire service and EMS educators throughout the Chicagoland area. Chicagoland CPR is extremely focused on providing real world, no fluff education, and the main focus is on organization, an engaged classroom, working with students to completely understand the material, getting your uh, certificates out on time, and most importantly, coming to your facility. They offer a wide variety of American Heart Association classes, CPR, first aid, AED, ACLS, PALS, and a full complement of Star Guard Elite, Lifeguard, and Aquatic Safety classes. Our clients include nursing homes, hospitals, long-term care facilities, fire departments, schools, park districts, coaching staff, and many other groups throughout the communities. If you're interested in hosting a class at your facility for your employees, or you have any questions about services and pricing, contact Chicagoland CPR. You can find them on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, the World Wide Web. I can't express to you, again, how important CPR and first aid training is. They want to hear from you soon. Give them a call. Find them. Let's set you up a class to help save some lives. Also sponsored by Chicagoland Event Medical Services, we are a first responder owned and operated first aid and emergency medical service provider. Our mission is to protect the lives and well-being of event patrons all over the state of Illinois by providing professional and experienced career EMS practitioners in an event setting. Our services are completely customizable to the needs of our customers. Our business was born out of a necessity to provide competent health care providers to both large and small events. We do this by bringing firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, nurses, lifeguards, first aid tents. We also customize your own site safety and emergency response plan, and that information will always be available to your staff. We pride ourselves on providing the best patient care possible to your events. 